If you haven't been here, just to let you know, we, are, we have started the book of Luke. We are continuing in it now. Um, we've been going through it, seeing what Luke, the book of Luke has to say about Jesus and what, what this book says has to do with our life. So we've been going through this for a while, and we're going to continue this morning. I just want to go ahead and get started. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. I'm going to be reading uh, from the ESV here. We've got on the screen. Feel free to read. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and get that going. If you don't have ESV, do the thing where you translate in your head as I read. Um, <laughs> a couple people laugh because they're like, I do that. Because I've got like the weird one that nobody ever has. And I'm always like, all right, that means, yeah, anyway. Uh, all right, here we go. After he had finished these sayings in the hearing of the people, Jesus entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and the servant was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders from the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not very far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself. for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but you just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I'll say to one, go, and he goes. And I'll say to another, come, and he comes. And I'll say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And all those who had been sent returned to the house, and they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd followed from the town with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Do not weep. Then he came and he touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this great report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. So before we get going, I kind of want to give you what I want to accomplish here this morning. So I look at this and I see two stories about miraculous events that happened uh, at the hands of Jesus. And I think that these stories center on the concept, the idea of faith. Right? It's probably an idea you've heard or probably a word you've heard, probably a concept you kind of have a definition for in your mind. But these two stories here, they show us the life of faith that we're called to live and the kind of faith we're supposed to have. But before we start, I just want to tell you like, I feel like sometimes we do ourselves a disservice with things like this because even things that are this important can become really familiar and they kind of escape us a little bit. Um, I, I kind of think about this like uh, it, it relates to a story of, from when I was a kid. So you know, I was like nine or ten. Um, I live with my mom and my stepdad in Greenville, South Carolina, and my stepdad thought that this was the perfect age to have me start doing yard work. 
particularly cutting the grass. So he was like, you know, a couple, couple weeks after my birthday, came up to me and said, Timothy, it's time to cut the grass. Whoa. Um, and we had sort of philosophical differences about how grass cutting education should be handled. His idea was, Timothy, I want you to cut the grass, so go cut it. That was it. So 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old me was like, now there's a blade that spins around at like maybe a thousand RPMs under there that's, that's made to cut stuff up. And you just want me to go get on that? Like no coaching, no education. He was like, just go do it. So I said, okay. You know, I was, I was you know, pretty self-confident. Kid. I was like, you can figure this out, right? Like people do this all the time. About, I don't know, 10 minutes later, I come back in and proceed to relay the news that the lawnmower is broken. Won't start, won't go anywhere. I'm like, look, I don't know what happened. I barely cut any grass. I mean, like one sixteenth of the front yard has been cut and it's like kind of a wavy line. So I don't know what you want me to do. And of course, he's like, ah, big huff, goes outside, comes back in, not no time, but three minutes, comes back in. And he's like, I can't believe this. I can't believe it. Timothy ruined the lawnmower. It's like, what did I do? Like, I didn't hit anything. There wasn't like a moving vehicle involved. Like, no, nothing crazy happened. Like, it just stopped. And he's like, Timothy put regular gas into it. And I was like, Yeah. This is how every internal combustion engine I've ever seen in my life works. You put gas in it and it goes, right? Like, that's how the car works. That's how every go-kart I've ever been on works. That's how boats work. Like, it's got to be how a lawnmower works. And he's like, no, you have to mix oil and gas together and then it works. I can't believe you didn't know that. What 10-year-old knows that? What 10-year-old is like intuitively says, you know what? I bet this is a two-stroke engine. You've got to mix that oil and gas up, baby. I've got to do that. Like, no, that's, that's not something you just have, right? Like, the next thing is like, I can't believe you don't know how to do calculus. You're an idiot. Like, that's not something that just comes in your programming, right? We've got to learn that. And uh, so, but I, so here's how I feel like this relates. I feel like a lot of times in sermons or Bible studies or books or whatever it is, we, we read something like this and are told something like, Faith is good. You should have faith. Now go exercise your faith. And we're like, yeah, what does that mean? And we get there and we get frustrated with ourselves and people get frustrated with us because we we don't know exactly how this is supposed to play out or what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to acquire this or exercise it or live in it or grow in it or whatever. So it's just like my stepdad getting mad at me because I didn't know how to mix gas and oil together for a two-stroke engine. It's not something that just... Pops in. It's something that we need to grow in. So my hope here that is, as we go through something that's sort of as common as faith, the idea of faith, the life of faith, the concept of faith, that we actually walk away saying, you know what, I feel confident. I might not be able to do everything, but I can take a step. I can take one step forward. I feel confident in that. So if you don't feel like that afterwards, feel free to come up to me and say, Timothy, you just told me to go cut the grass. And I'll say, you know what? Steve is a great person to talk to then. Um, no, I really won't. So I, so I feel like there are three things that, the, that the, these two stories show us, show us about faith. They show us the what of faith. They show us the how of faith. And they show us the who 
of faith. So what, how, who of faith. So let's go ahead and start with the what of faith. And by this, I mean, like, what are we actually talking about here? When we say faith, what does that mean? What are we what are we talking about when we speak about faith? And so rather than trying to come to a definition on our own, I, I want to look at when they when people reading this, when people around this time said the word faith, what were they intending to communicate? So when you in the when you read this in the Greek, you come to this word faith and you come to this word. It's pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S or that weird thing that are all the buttons you never press on the calculator on the left. Um, and, and so what this means, though, when we said, when they said this word, here, here's what it means. It means a conviction or belief in the New Testament, specifically respecting man's relationship to God and divine things generally with the idea of trust and holy fervor born of faith and joined with it. So the idea is that something happens in our head and in our heart. We come to an idea. We come to an understanding. We come to experience a new reality specifically concerning God and things uh, that pertain to him in our life with him. But it's not just an idea. It's not just a belief system. It's not just a set of rules or something that we think about sometimes. It's something that takes root within us so deeply and strongly that it cannot help but produce action. See, there's this story of just a chapter later in the book of Luke where Jesus is on the boat, is on a boat with his disciples. They're crossing a large body of water. Storm comes and it's it's game time. I mean, this is perfect storm territory here. Talking about waves lapping up over the boat. They're freaking out. They're like, oh, no, we're going to die Last ditch effort. Let's wake Jesus. So Jesus is sleeping during this. They say, let's wake up Jesus and see what he's got to say about this. So they wake him up. He gets up. Kind of, you know, I imagine he's kind of like groggy, kind of like, ah, what's going on, guys? Oh, storm. Be still. Says the words, be still, and everything gets quiet and calm. That's pretty amazing in itself. But, and then he looks at them, and I think this is even more amazing. He looks at them, and he says, where is your faith? See, and I feel like if he would have said that to me, I'd be like, what do you mean, where's my faith? I have faith, but I was going to die, man. Like, I was, this was getting real out here, and you were asleep. Like, what do you mean, where's my faith? Because I have this concept of faith that is psychological or, or, or feelings-oriented. And Jesus said, no, no, the faith that I'm talking about, the faith that the Bible testifies to, is one where your head, your heart, and your hands are integrated So they would say that you, if you have faith, this kind of faith, you have to act in accordance with it. It produces action no matter what. If it doesn't, it's not the kind of faith that we're talking about. It's something different. You may have it, you may feel it, you may think it, but it's not what we're talking about here. Because it produces action. A a great description I heard of biblical faith, and there's a book called Bruchko. It's about this missionary named Bruce Olson. Right. Bruce Olson, he studies linguistics in college, becomes a Christian and says, you know what? I'm going to go to a, somewhere where people are, are, speak a language that the Bible has never been translated into. Where they don't have a Bible. They don't have preachers. They don't have churches. I'm going to go. I'm going to learn their language and I'm going to do that. And so he sets off full of zeal and fire and passion. He says, I'm going to go to this tribe in South America. Tries the first time, really fails miserably. Buy the book if you want to read the story. It's, it's, it's awful. He says, you know what? I'm going to try again. 
So he goes again, and one of the things I don't, it, it, he doesn't seem to realize is that the tribe he's going to are cannibalistic. So when they see Bruce, they see dinner. So they get there, and he's like, hey, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And they're like, hey, we're going to roast you, bro. Like, we're about to, so they put him in a cage, and they're like, this guy is so malnourished from being in the jungle. They're like, all right, we've got to get you back healthy before we do anything. And so he's in this cage. He's like, all right, I've got to do something. I've got to come up with some way to get out of this. And so he starts to pick up their language as he's in this cage, overhears them speaking, overhears them talking, learns just enough to begin to communicate the truth of the gospel to them. God empowers his message. And all of a sudden, all these tribal people are, are becoming Christians, getting saved. The Holy Spirit is moving in this village. They release him. They become Christians. They, be, they get baptized. And as he's doing this, he begins to work on Bible translation. And as he's working on Bible translation, he comes to this concept of faith. He says, all right, what's, what's the word, what's the picture I can give them to understand what the Bible means when it talks about faith? And it clicked for him one night because he realized these people sleep in hammocks suspended sort of in the canopy of the jungle way off the ground because stuff on the ground at night can eat you. Like, this is jungle jungle. This is like, it's not like, ooh, spider. It's like, oh, that thing is eating my arm. Or I just got trampled by something that's bigger than my car. Right? Like, this, the ground is not the, the move at night. Like, this is, so they, they sleep in hammocks suspended in trees. And what they would do, they suspend their hammock from a branch and they climb out over it, get right over it, and then just kind of drop into the hammock, sleep for the night. And so Bruce looks and he goes, oh, that's it. So when he talked about faith, he used the phrase, Getting in God's hammock. See, see, what happens is he said you need to understand who God is and what he's like so that you let the entire weight of your life drop onto your understanding of him. See, in the same way that they said, you know, they said, I, I want to be out of danger. I need to be up here. So I'm going to do this. I know the hammock will support me. I know it's, it'll do what it's designed to do. So I have no problem letting myself go. Just the same as probably all of you are like, y'all aren't really worried right now if that chair is going to get out from under you right now. Like you have active trust that that chair is going to support you. So what we have here, what he's saying is just as these tribal people would release themselves unreservedly into a hammock and it would catch them. Faith for us is looking at God, understanding who he is and what he's like and saying, I trust this enough that I'll lean the entire weight of my life on it. And not only that, but then it will begin to produce action in accordance with that faith. It will begin to do stuff in me that testifies that it's real and living and active. Because, look, here's the deal. They could have, the, the guys could have been like, yeah, I'm sure that hammock will support me, but I'm going to sleep on the ground. That's not what they did. They said, I believe that hammock will support me, so I'm getting in it. In the same way, this faith says, I believe that God is who he says he is. He is like what he says he's like. He does what he says he does. So I'm going to follow him, trust him, give my life to him, look to him as my source of meaning, dignity, and importance. So I'm going to rest in what I understand of him. Now, I don't necessarily think this is always the, the picture we get of faith. I think sometimes there are pictures of faith that kind of kind of lead us off track a little bit. So I just want to tell you real quick what, what faith is definitely not, along with what it is. So we just looked at what it is. But what isn't faith? What are some misinterpretations? I think a lot of times we think that faith is just this blind trust. This unreasoned, unthoughtful, 
say, you know what, I'm just going to go with this because it seems like it's true. And that is definitely not what it is. I, I love this quote uh, relating to this. This is a book called Love God with All Your Mind by J.P. Moreland. Fantastic uh, treatment of what faith is like as it relates to, to how you believe. He says this. While few would actually put it in these terms, faith is now understood as a blind act of will. A decision to believe something that is either independent of reason or is a simple choice to believe while ignoring the paltry lack of evidence for what is believed. By contrast with this modern misunderstanding, biblically, faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God. A trust in, excuse me, a trust in what we have reason to believe is true. Understood in this way, we see that faith is built on reason. We should have good reasons for thinking that Christianity is true before we dedicate ourselves to it completely. So you look at this centurion. The reason he thinks Jesus can heal people is because he's heard story after story after story of people coming to Jesus who are sick, paralyzed, oppressed, and afflicted. And when they meet him, they're free. So he says, I have reason to believe this. In the same way, we look and, and we should say, what are, are there actual Reasons that substantiate what we believe. And there are. Like, we're not, this isn't opposed to one another, as some people would have us think. Uh, like, for instance, we just celebrated Easter, the resurrection, right? There are actual, historically reliable reasons why we believe the resurrection. So, like, one of them, uh, one that I found particularly useful was, there are hundreds of movements, just like Christianity, at this time, hundreds of movements of people saying, hey, I'm this chosen one. I'm the Messiah. I'm coming in. I'm going to save the world. And every single time the leader of these movements was killed or he just died on his own. And every single time one of two things happened. One, either the movement just stopped and kind of faded out. People were like, OK, I guess it was wrong. Or they said, who is this closest relative? Where's his brother, his dad, his mom, his cousin? Because surely they can lead our movement now. And that is exactly what did not happen with Christianity. Instead of saying our leader died, okay, we're going to stop or we're going to find his brother. They said he raised from the dead. He's actually alive. His body was raised back to life. And out of these hundreds of movements, just like this from this time, the only one that is still growing, thriving, expanding today is the one who makes this miraculous claim of a bodily resurrection, but that actually has historically reliable evidence. So faith isn't blind. There are reasons to faith. This is one of the big things that gets thrown about, around as people say, oh, Christians, you just have this blind faith, this ridiculous trust. Some people here this morning probably struggle with this fact. Some people, people here probably say, oh, I, I want to trust, but I feel like this is not faithful to, to my intellect. I, I'm not, I, the faith is opposed to thinking. No, we say we have faith, faith because we think. We have faith as a result of thinking. So faith is not blind. Faith also isn't passive. What do we see going on here? We see the, the centurion going out, sending people to Jesus, saying, I believe this, so I'm going to act on it. See, we, we look here, and, and the picture we get of faith sometimes can be that it's just sort of this belief system that we have out here. A box that gets checked off, a system that we assent to, something that just is a passive act. It's kind of cold, kind of stale, kind of dusty, that gets used every so often. And that is 100% not what they say here. 
They say this is something that is living, active, breathing, just as your body is, so your faith is. It is something that is moving and compelling you towards the person of Jesus. So let's pause real quick. Is, is, that, the picture you, is, that, is that the faith you have right now? If you were to look at the trust you have in Jesus, how you view him, what you think of him, is it something that's continually moving in you? Or is it something that kind of just gets dusted off every once in a while when you need it? Is it something that just kind of exists out here, sort of in this like blah, gray state? Or is it this, this fiery thing inside of you? So it's not passive. It's also not self-serving. Because the, all right, here's the deal. I think if we're real... Sometimes we kind of get this model of faith that says, if we have enough faith, if we believe enough, if we believe hard enough, if we believe the right way, nothing bad's going to happen to us. We'll get what we need, even what we want. We'll, we'll have nice stuff. We'll live good lives. We won't be touched by suffering. Everything will kind of go our way. And, and that is 100% false. That is 100% false. While faith doesn't prevent suffering, it is absolutely 100% there to sustain you through it. Faith is not something that's like this crowbar to get things out of God's hands and into your life. Faith is looking at the person and work of Jesus and saying, oh my gosh, I want to center my life on who you are. Not, Not just what you can do, not just what you can give me. He's not some cosmic vending machine where we go in and press the right faith code and we get what we want. He's much more than that. It's much better than that. So faith is not self-serving. It's not cold or passive and it's not blind. But it is a living, active trust that propels us forward in life with Christ. So that's the what of faith. That's kind of like the substance of it. That's like the, sort of the nuts and bolts of it. But okay, so if we have this, we understand what it is. What does it look like when it's in our life? Well, I think faith transforms us in two levels. One, and who we are, and two, and what we do. So the how of faith, like how this actually plays out and works in our life, it transforms who we are, and it transforms what we do. Look at the centurion. We, we know that this guy, he, he's a, so he's a Roman soldier, probably reasonably high up in command, which means that he, he probably makes pretty good money, so he's not poor. He has some status. You saw the picture that the other people portrayed him. Oh, he's this great guy. He deserves for you to move in his life, Jesus. He built our synagogue. He did this. He's an awesome guy. But when it comes to him, he doesn't lean on any of that. He doesn't lean on power. He doesn't lean on status. He doesn't lean on prestige. All he says is, I need your help. I have someone who's valuable to me that is sick. And I don't have anything that I can do. He doesn't say, come to me because I'm rich. He doesn't say, come to me because I'm powerful. He doesn't say, come to me because of my elevated status. He says, I want you to to visit me because I, I think you're that generous. I think you're that good. And so what, the way that faith transforms who we are is rather than looking at other things for sources of meaning, value, importance, significance, and dignity, it shifts our, it shifts our focus and the weight of our life to one point, which is the person of Jesus. So it happens all the time. Like we're designed to trust things. Like we, it's not a question of will you trust. It's a question of what will you trust. 
Like, are you going to look at your job and say, this is what makes me, makes my life. This is what will make me or break me. Will you look at your family or the behavior of your kids? Will you look at your educational level? Will you look at how attractive you are, how much you weigh, or what kind of car you drive, or something like that, and say, you know what, this is where I derive the value for my life. Because that's what we tend to do. We look and we say, you know what, work and money will give me significance. So I have no problem working 90 hours a week, sacrificing my family, spending no time with my kids, giving up everything around me, becoming a person that I don't necessarily like, maybe even compromising who I am to achieve this goal because I think that this will give me meaning, value, and significance. See, this is, this is a great thing. If you want to do a little test real quick to see what you're actually trusting, is there anything in your life that would just undo you if you lost it? Is there anything, anyone, any, anything in your life that if you lost it, you wouldn't be able to recover? Or what is the thing that if you gained it, you would be set forever? See, that's an easy way to reveal where our faith is and what we put our trust in. Is what is the thing that will wreck us or what is the thing that will make us? What gives me the absolute satisfaction of knowing that this is all the significance, purpose, value I'll ever need? Or without this, I will never have it. And Jesus says the only thing that is made to support that kind of weight, the only thing that is made to hold that is, a, is, is him. An active, living, trusting relationship with him. Otherwise, it will fail and disappoint you. It will crumble under the weight of the, of the trust of your life and absolutely let you down. So that's, that's who we are. That's what we love. That's what we think. That's what we believe. But it also transforms what we do. See, if you look at Jesus, we're called to have a faith in him that causes us to become like him, right? Like it's not just faith in what he can do. It's, it's a faith that actually begins to change who we are, change our thoughts, will, emotion, actions, our entire life to become like him. And so we begin to do things as he would do. So look, he comes to this woman. He comes to this woman whose son is dead. And the first thing he does is he stops and he says, woman, don't weep. And he extends his hand and touches this dead boy. Now, this would have been a scandal. Because during this time, dead things made you impure or unclean. If you touched them, you were done. You had, to, you had to make a sacrifice. You had to go through certain rituals before you could be kind of reinstated into society. So Jesus looks at this woman who has no husband and no children is completely alone. Literally one of the most vulnerable members, members of her society. He says, I'm, I'm just not going to let this happen. And so he brings life to a dead place. And so here, here's what I think this says to us. I think that means whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you do. If you have this kind of faith, this kind of faith moves you to bring life to dead places. You all have the mandate, you all have the calling, you all have the responsibility to look at things that are broken, dysfunctional, by all accounts dead, and say, how am I, through my faith in Jesus, the answer for this? And this isn't just a luxury, like, oh, okay, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. This is a responsibility. This is that thing that we said, faith is active, and if you're not active in your faith, you probably don't really have the kind of faith we're talking about. This is what we're talking about there. 
So what is it? So we're talking about art here. We're, we, I mean, think about the culture we live in that just it thirsts for beauty, thirsts for entertainment, thirsts for things to fill their senses. I mean, like we're living in like the golden era of TV and movies right now, right? Like every time you turn on, turn on the TV, there's some new critically acclaimed series. Every movie makes more money at the box office than the next. But we have, you know, Laura McNeil is here and she's saying, I have this deep thing that gives me deep gladness. And I also notice that the world needs it. So I'm going to do it. There's this thing, there's this culture, this, this piece of us that's broken, but I'm going to come in and bring life. You're all called to do that. You're all called to find this thing in you that is moved by the state and condition of the world and say, how can I be the answer? Every single one. I'm not just saying this because it's my thing to say it because like, I, I actually literally believe this. Like, I believe that every person here, if I could go through and point at each one of you right now, you are actually called to do this. And this isn't a question of, am I called or not? It's a question of obedience or disobedience. So find this thing in you. Jesus, it says Jesus was moved with compassion. Find this thing in you that creates this literal, physical, visceral response. This is, I have to do something. I can't sit still. I can't be quiet. I can't be stopped. I absolutely have to act because this thing makes me feel more alive than I've ever felt. Because I feel like the purpose of God is coming through my life into this situation. That's how it's called to transform our life. That's how it's called to transform what we do. That's the how of faith active and present in our life. Is this true for you? Or is the peak of your faith this morning? Is the absolute climax of your faith what you experience here in this room? If it is, I'm telling you, there's so much more. There's so much more. There's so many more people who need what Jesus has put in you. There's so many more people who need that thing that moves you with compassion. There's so many more people who have dead areas and dead places and you have life inside of you. This faith has brought life to you, life that you can give away freely and call people to life and life at its highest level. That's how it changes what we do. That's the how of faith. But finally, and maybe most importantly, actually, I think very much most importantly. Is the who of our faith. Because at the center of our faith, what our faith orbits around, what our faith rests on, what our faith is anchored to. Is the person and work of Jesus. Without him, it's shipwrecked. It's pointless. But there are some things in this that we need to be very aware of. See, these people came to him. The centurion recognized that he was a man under authority. And all the people who saw this, this resurrection recognized that he was a prophet. But for Jesus, that wasn't exactly what they were calling, what he was calling them to. The faith that we're called to recognizes that he is solely and only the one who was sent here to undo our sin. To, to be put in our place for our transgressions so that we might have a life. He is the way the, God the Father opened a way into life with him. And Jesus is that way. He's the one who was sent to fix this brokenness that we find ourselves in. He's the one who gives us that compassion. He's the one who fills us with hope and generates our faith. Press pause real quick. What came first? Jesus or these people's faith in Jesus? It's a real question you can answer. Jesus. 
Jesus was active on the scene, healing, doing stuff. And people said, oh, I'm going to trust that guy. He's saying stuff and then doing stuff that backs it up. So I'm going to trust him. I just want to tell you this. If you're here this morning and you feel like you are on the last legs of your walk of faith, like you're like, literally, I don't know if I have much more left in me to continue my life in Christ. Maybe you blew it big time recently. Maybe you're just tired and worn out and exhausted. But you would say, hey, Timothy, this morning... Like, I don't know if I can make it to, not Monday, I don't know if I can make it to Sunday night. Like, I got lunch plans at 1.30. I don't know if I can make it that long. Here's the wonderful, wonderful promise, is it's not your responsibility. Jesus is the one who starts it. Jesus is the one who carries you. Jesus is the one who supports you. Jesus is the one who does all of this. All you have to do is trust him. All you have to do is look at him. All you have to do is say, show me again what you've done and who you are so that faith will grow in my heart. See, faith isn't something we work up. It's a response to who he is and what he's doing already. So it's not your responsibility to keep it going. It's not your responsibility to work it up. Your only responsibility is to respond when he does something. So if you're beat down and tired and worn out, like, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Take heart because he is working. He wants this more than you do. Look at how compassionate he is. Look at how loving he is. He wants this for you. He's on your team more than anyone. So be encouraged. This shows us what Jesus' character is like. He's compassionate and loving. He takes the first step. Like he's the one reaching out. He's the one saving. He's the one giving us faith. He's the one being faithful to us. He's the one saying, look, you blew it again, but I love you so much. Just trust me. That's all you have to do. He's the one who says, every time you feel weak, I am strong. Every time you mess up, I am perfect. Every time you blow it, I never blew it. Every time that you feel faint, I am strong. Every time that you feel faithless, I am faithful. And he says, trust me, that's why our faith works. It doesn't work because we try really hard. It works because he's really strong and really good. And so our only response is to trust him. Our only response is just not take our eyes off of it. Our only response is to look at him and say, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? Where do you want me to go? I'll try my best. I'm clumsy. I'll trip. I'll fall. But I need you to hold my hand. Will you do it? And he always says yes. He says, yes, it's his desire to do this. He's not going to set us up for failure. He's not going to hang us up to dry. He's not going to send us out to cut the grass and not tell us how the lawnmower works. He wants us to succeed. So as we close this morning, Harvey, you can go ahead and come up. Uh, I just want to ask you, like, how is your, your faith? Is it alive? Is it active? Or is it kind of, kind of dusty and dry? Have you even thought about this kind of thing in the past six months? Maybe you'd say, this is the first time I've ever even considered this. I don't even, I don't even know what this is like. As, as I said, the only thing we have to do is say yes. The only thing we need is a yes in our heart. The only thing we have to do is focus on him. The only thing we have to do is ask. Because he's more faithful than we are. He never gives up on us. His answer is, yes, I'll come to your house. 
No, I don't want your son to be dead. So we're, 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 we're like the centurion servant right now. We're like this boy on a funeral plank. We need Jesus to move. So the question is, how do we need Jesus to move? Where are you right now? I mean, I mean are you looking at your faith cold and passive? Have you ever experienced a living faith? Have you ever been moved to the point where you're like, Jesus, I will do anything. I'm fully committed. I trust you enough to get all the way in your hammock. So we have a few ways to respond this morning. First, we have our offering baskets up here. You're welcome if you come prepared to give your tithes and offerings. Go ahead and uh, use those. We have our uh, communion set up over here. That's the way we actually remember.